Lord, we read in 1 Peter that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And that is the word we long to study this morning. Open our eyes and our hearts that we might behold wondrous things from your word and apply them to our lives so that we are forever changed. In the name of Jesus, we plead. Imagine you find in your grandma's attic an old dresser, and you're really excited. You think this might be valuable. You're excited because you're going to the Antique Roadshow. It's going to be on TV. But as you're cleaning this dresser up, you find a hidden drawer, and in it, a letter. Probably a letter related to your family, but there's no author. You clean off the dust, and the ink is smeared, and you begin to read about events that took place long and long ago. You understand a lot of it. It's intriguing, but some of it's mysterious because you can't put it into context. Related to us, our family, but who wrote it and why? And you began to do the search. You talk to people in your family until you find out that this letter came from your great-uncle John. And then you find out some history about John, and it all makes sense about how he was in the war, and he was concerned, and he wrote this letter, and it related to such and such. It all begins to come together, and you have new appreciation and insight into that letter because you know the author. I think sometimes our reading of the Bible is deficient and we don't really understand all that's going on in the message because we're not acquainted with the author. We've been studying 2 Peter throughout the summer and we know the author is the Apostle Peter. And it helps us to know something about Peter. For instance, in this second letter, he mentions about falling in chapter 1, and he mentions about falling in chapter 3. And it seems like he's telling us, don't do this, because I know a lot about falling. You go back in the history of Peter, and you know it well. It's a story that we learn in Sunday school. It's the story of the Last Supper, and Jesus predicts from Mark 14, he says, you know, all of you are going to fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. You're all going to leave me, Jesus says. And Peter speaks up in that same chapter and he says, not me. Even if all these other people fall away, even if all these other bozos leave you, not me. I will stay true. And you can just hear the arrogance and the determination from Peter's voice. And I think he meant it. But like a lot of us who make statements that we mean at the moment but could never fulfill, Jesus says, Peter, you don't understand. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. Jesus is arrested in the garden, and Peter follows from a distance because he's afraid. When he gets to the courtyard of the high priest, the servant girl thinks that Peter is one of the disciples. She said, you were with that Nazarene. And he says, I don't even know what you're talking about. She says it again to him, and he denies it. Then the group around the fire say, yes, you are one of them. And he calls oaths down from heaven and says, I don't know this man. 
and the rooster crows. And Peter realizes he's done. And Mark 14, 72 simply says this, after the rooster crowed, Peter went out and he broke down and he wept. Peter knew about falling and he knew about being broken. And that's why I like the writings of Peter because I know something about falling and I know something about being broken because of my own sin and weeping over my own failure. But Luke gives us some insight as to something else Jesus said during that same supper. Luke chapter 22, verse 32, Jesus said to Peter, You know, the devil desires to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon. I've prayed that your faith wouldn't fail. And Peter's faith didn't fail. Think about it. He was crushed, he was broken, his faith was bent and twisted. But he didn't fail. He was discouraged and ready to quit. And then the rest of the verse says this. Now, Peter, when you have turned back, I want you to strengthen your brothers. And Peter receives a call from Jesus Christ having to do with a strengthening ministry to other believers. Peter, you've experienced what it is to fall and to turn back. And when you do, I want you to focus in on this ministry of helping others, other brothers be strong. And so Peter did that as an apostle. Read the book of Acts. He strengthened Christians and started churches. But when he came to his last letter, he knows he's about ready to die. This is still the subject on his mind and heart. 2 Peter chapter 1. Jesus has already told Peter that he's going to die. And so he says in chapter 1 and verse 12, I'm writing these things to you to remind you. I want to remind you, even though you're firmly established. That's taken from the same root word of Luke 22 that said, strengthen your brethren. So he's on the same wavelength. He's, he's on that same uh, line of thinking. I want to people to be strengthened. You're already strengthened, but I'm writing these to make you even stronger. And then we go to chapter 3, verse 17, and he says, I don't want you to, to fall from your secure position. Again, the Greek word taken from the same root word of Luke 22. Peter is fulfilling the calling he received from Jesus that fateful night so many years before. And so he's writing 2 Peter because he knows we're prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. We easily stumble and quickly fall. So Peter's writing so that we won't do that. So that we'll remain strengthened and secure as believers. That's what's on his heart. So how can we keep from falling? Peter gives us some wise, wise words, and I want us to begin reading with verse 17, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 17. Peter says, therefore, dear friends, by the way, that's the fourth time he's used that phrase in this chapter, dear friends. It's the idea of beloved, uh, of a close and personal and loving relationship. It's the kind of relationship a pastor should have with his people and people with one another. 
my dear beloved friends, since you already know this, that scoffers are coming and the day of judgment is coming, and God has promised that this is going to be a judgment of fire, and the ungodly will be judged, and we need to live godly lives, since you already know this, be on your guard so that, you don't be, so that you're not carried away by the air of lawless men and fall from your secure position. The first thing Peter says, by way of counsel, is that we need to be on our guard, always on guard, verse 17. Uh, the verb is in the present tense and speaks of the idea of something ongoing, something that we are devoted to and committed to. Always on guard. Always on guard for your life. Why? Because we don't want you to be carried away by air. The, the false teachers of chapter 2, just to review quickly, they were preachers of deception. They denied the truth. They were on the road to destruction. They proclaimed destructive heresies, and those who believed them would be taken down the wrong path, the broad path that leads to destruction. They live, chapter 2, verse 18, they live in error, and they breed damnation. So don't be carried away by them. And here the metaphor is like a ship that drifts without anchor. A ship that is blown by the wind or moved by the currents so popular in the day. Peter says, don't go adrift. Don't be carried away by air. Our anchor is the word of God. And if you don't know the word, you are susceptible to error. In chapter 1, it was the holy prophets who were carried away by the Holy Spirit in writing the word. Now there's the danger of being carried away by the false prophets into error and destruction. Don't be carried away. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. He says, because if you do, you'll lose your secure position. So don't fall from your secure position. Now, he's not talking about salvation. He's not saying if you're led away by the error of these teachers that you will lose the salvation you've once received. The Bible is implicit and clear repeatedly that if you are truly born again, that salvation experience is something that God has wrought and he will never let you go. He holds you in his hand, John 10, and no one can pluck you out of his hand. You can never lose your salvation. But remember, Peter is talking not just to a group of only believers, but a group of believers and those who profess to be believers. And some will fall from their position as Christians, and they will give up the faith altogether. They will apostatize. And in their apostasy... They will show that they were never Christians to begin with. But he's warning real Christians, too, that you can be secure in Christ. You can be walking with Christ under his blessing. And if you don't follow Christ, you can backslide. You can fall from a position of confidence and lose assurance of salvation. That's what he said in chapter 1. You can fall from a position of effectiveness a strong position of trusting God into a weak position of following sin. So don't 
be carried away. Always be on guard. You and I live in a pretty safe environment in America. Now I know we can focus on crime and, and we know crime happens, but basically in our homes and we go out to dinner, we feel pretty secure, don't we? Suppose you lived in Afghanistan right now. Wouldn't that be a different situation? How safe would you feel? You'd put on armor, wouldn't you? Because people are shooting at you. And you'd always be on your guard. Don't go here, don't go there. Beware, beware. My friend, as a Christian, you are in a spiritual Afghanistan. This world is not your home. And there are people shooting at you. And you need to put on the armor of God. And you need to be on your guard always. If you're not, you'll drift away with the tide of the world. And you'll be taken into error. And you will fall. That's why 1 Corinthians 10 says, You that think you stand, take heed, lest you fall. You become a prime candidate for a fall when you think that you never will. When you think that somehow you're above it. When you think that somehow it's beneath you. I would never do that, Peter says, and he does it three times before the rooster crows twice. That will happen to us. Beware lest you fall. If you want to keep from falling, beware of a fall. Be on your guard. Secondly, this is verse 18. I want you always to be growing, Peter says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in grace. Now, uh, I think that that simply uh, refers to the Christian life that he talked about in chapter 1, this participating with the divine nature, all the aspects of God's character, which are gracious and good. It speaks about characteristic traits, the ones we mentioned in chapter 1, the seven things that we add to our faith. Grow in this grace. Turn back to... 1 Peter chapter 4, just for a moment, because sometimes we see grace as being narrow and one-dimensional, and yet God tells us that grace is anything but that. In 1 Peter chapter 4, we are told that every believer has a spiritual gift. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you have a spiritual gift? Whether you believe it or not, it's true you have one. I know that because God says it right here. Each one has received a gift. It's some type of spiritual ability that when you use it, it blesses others and advances the kingdom of God and brings God glory. So, verse 10 says, use your gift. Minister, serve one another as a faithful steward of the manifold grace of God or the varied grace of God. In other words, the grace of God doesn't come just in one flat dimension. It has many facets to it. There's the grace that saves us, and there's the grace that strengthens us, 2 Timothy says. There's the grace that gets us through trials, 2 Corinthians 12. And there's the grace of speech, effective and well-received. 
There's grace for every aspect of the Christian life. Grace becomes a dynamic power in us so that we can do what God's called us to do. Grow in the manifold grace of God. And when you go to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, Peter introduces this wonderful title for God. He's the God of all grace. Now, you could call him the God of all mercy and the God of all love. 1 John says God is love. You can say he's the God of righteousness and judgment and judgment and all those things are true. But Peter says, I want you to focus in on this aspect. He is a God of grace. And aren't you glad for that? Because if it weren't for the grace of God, none of us would be here today. God's grace has been poured out upon us in Christ. There's common grace that touches everyone, and there's special grace that touches those who believe. And it all comes from the God of grace. He has a monopoly on grace. You can't buy it. You can't find it anywhere else. You've got to go to grace, to, to God, to find grace. And the way you do that is to humble yourself. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So, grow in this grace. Pastor Doug read earlier from Philippians chapter 3. Paul acknowledged, although he was saved by grace and not by his own works, he still wanted to know more of God. He wanted to grow into his knowledge of God. And later on in that chapter, he says, I just want you to know, I don't think I've arrived yet. I've got a long way to go. So I press on to gain more, to accomplish more, to fulfill more of the very thing God's called me to do. I wonder why sometimes we as believers act as though we've already arrived. Have you noticed that? There's no more striving. There's no more pushing. There's no more growing. There's no more reading. There's little praying because somehow we think the position we've arrived at is sufficient. Peter wrote this because he didn't believe that he'd arrived yet. He was concerned about his own spiritual growth. And if the two greatest apostles are concerned about going further, so should we. Grow in grace and grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this could be knowledge about Christ, or it could be the knowledge of Christ. Peter started in chapter 1 and said the knowledge of God is so vitally important. We participate in the divine nature through a knowledge of God. We are to add to our faith knowledge. It's knowledge about God. But it's just not knowledge about God. It's knowing God. And that was Paul's focus. You see, it's one thing to have a thorough acquaintance with the Word of God. And it's another thing to have a personal acquaintance with the God of the Word. It's one thing to fill your mind with facts and truth, and that's good, but that's only the road to the destination. The destination is knowing God. During communion service, we often sing that hymn, Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to me, as thou didst break the loaves beside the sea. Great one, great song. The next statement says, Beyond the sacred page I seek thee, Lord. My spirit pants for thee, O living word. In one of my hymnals, 
I scratched out that word beyond and wrote the word, within the sacred page, I seek thee, Lord. You see, I, I thought the songwriter had it wrong. You can't know God outside of the Bible, and that's true. You only see Christ within the pages of the word, and that's true. But I misunderstood what the, what the writer of the hymn was trying to do. He wasn't saying, get rid of the Bible and somehow know God. He was saying, beyond mere knowledge, I seek you, Lord. Isn't it possible to read the Bible and not want to know Christ? Isn't it possible to have knowledge and not walk with God? So not just mere reading, but my spirit pants for you. And I want to know you. Lord, I want to know you more. I want to know you personally. I want to walk with you in a real way. And notice, this is all about Christ, verse 18. We want to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Modern man is so introspective, so focused on himself, so subjective. Everything is about us. And that makes us miserable and unhappy creatures when our sole focus is us. Peter says, look outside yourself to Jesus. You have fallen, his grace gets you back up. Grow in that grace. And as you know more about him and come to know him, you have everything you need to live a godly life. And that's where it begins. To know Jesus Christ is heaven itself and eternal life. But Peter doesn't stop there. The way we keep from falling is to be on our guard always, to be growing in Christ always. And then he adds one more thing, always giving glory to Christ. Look at the last part of verse 18. To him be glory both now and forever. Glory now and glory forever. What does glory now mean? It means that I live in such a way that Jesus Christ, while I'm living on planet Earth, is somehow magnified in the eyes of others. To glorify Jesus means I cause others to think well of him. It means if they have a small view of God, I magnify that view. I enlarge and increase their view of how good and how great and how majestic God is. The glory of God speaks of the wonder and majesty of his person. To glorify God means to honor him. I give him glory not because he's deficient. He has all the glory there is. I ascribe to him glory. I acknowledge he is glorious. And my life is lived in such a way that because I live, people give glory to God. Did you know according to Isaiah 43, verse 7, all people have been created for his glory? That means you. I don't know what your vocation is, but I know this. You were created to give God glory. You might be a carpenter, and you might be a, a housemaker. You might be a teacher, and a lawyer, or a doctor, or a machinist. It doesn't make any difference. You were made to give him glory. And you do that by growing in Christ and living in such a way that you put the best picture on God. I mean, it's not hard to do if you're going to give an accurate picture of him. It's a good picture. It's a great picture. 
But people have a fuzzy view of God. You've got to live in such a way that they will see his glory and his goodness. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But Peter didn't stop there. It's not just glory now. It's glory in the ages to come. I love what this says here, and it's actually a very remarkable statement. In the original, if you were to literally read it, it says, in the day of the age, or the day of eternity. So Peter says, to him be glory now and in the day of eternity. Now, what's so significant about that is if you follow Peter's thinking, he's been talking a lot about days, hasn't he? If you go back to verse 7, he talked about the day of judgment in which the heavens will disappear with a fervent heat and judgment will come on the ungodly. This is also called the day of the Lord and probably also the day of God in verse 12. He's talking about the day of vindication and the day of righteous judgment. And he says, with God, a day is like a thousand years, verse 8. He's talking a lot about days. And when he gets to the end, he's got one more day to introduce to us. It's the day of the age that lasts forever. And he says, Jesus should get glory now and glory in the ages to come. That's what Paul said in Romans 11. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Or Jude in his wonderful benediction says, To the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. By the way, how can Jesus get this kind of glory now and forever. You ever thought about that? God said, I will not give my glory to another. Only one answer. Jesus is God. And that's why he can share the glory of Jehovah because he is Jehovah in the flesh. To Jesus be glory forever and ever. Honor the Son just like you honor the Father because he is God incarnate. To him be glory now and forever. Do you know one of the most sinful things about our age, about our society in North America right now? You know one of the most wicked things that goes on? It's not the murdering of innocent people not the crimes that are committed that we hear about. I think the most wicked thing in this age is that we are robbing Jesus of the glory due his name. He is God, and he should be glorified now. When we come to worship, we ought to glorify him, but when we go outside these walls, we ought to live in such a way that he is glorified. And one day, the Bible says, one day the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to cover the earth just like the waters cover the sea. Won't be that that'd be a great day? In every nation, in every village, in every hamlet, from every tongue, Jesus will be glorified. Do you know what a flash mob is? Some of you do. Maybe some of you haven't heard what that is. So let me read to you from the authoritative dictionary, Wikipedia. 
It says a flash mob is a group of people who assemble suddenly in a public place and they perform a song or put on a demonstration. It appears to be spontaneous, but in actuality it's well rehearsed. It starts out with one or two and then slowly there's a large group that gets involved. And then as soon as they're done, they quickly disperse. The purposes vary. Sometimes it's pure entertainment. Sometimes it's political demonstration. The term was probably coined around 2003. And you can go on YouTube and watch many of these flash mobs. The first one I ever saw was a group of people singing a song from The Sound of Music in some train station, I think it was in Europe. And it was the most amazing thing because it starts with a couple people and then a whole group joins in and they're dancing choreography. And it was just amazing. But my favorite flash mob is when a group sings the Hallelujah Chorus. And by the way, there's a lot of them. Let me just show you a clip from one that took place during Christmas time in a food court of a shopping mall back in 2010. Christmas music is playing. People are eating their chicken nuggets, hoping that no one will bother them, wondering what kind of gift to buy. Then the musician begins to play the Hallelujah Chorus. And people are in for a big surprise. That guy's good. Stand. I'm sure some people stood just because they thought that's what you're supposed to do, and they weren't in on what was happening. what it's going to be like someday everywhere. By the way, this flash mob, Hallelujah Chorus, has been done all over the place. And you can see several of them on YouTube. 
and someday it is going to be all over the place where people spontaneously break out into songs of glory and every tongue confess, hallelujah, Jesus Christ is Lord. And we should live in such a way right now that people say of our lives, God is alive and he is glorious. Let's pray. Lord, we have heard from the Apostle Peter, actually from your spirit through Peter. We've heard that we have everything we need to live a godly life in the midst of this evil and wicked generation. But we must be aware they're false teachers. They go about deceiving and being deceived and leading people into destruction. But we have the word more reliable than any eyewitness. We have the word given to us by God. And that word is true and secure forever. And though scoffers may come and question the promise of his coming, we know that you will come again just as you promised to judge the world in fire. You will come to judge those who have turned away from the gospel of Christ and the free offer of forgiveness and salvation in him. Judgment day is coming. And what kind of people should we be? Godly and holy people, living our lives in such a way that we are growing in grace and knowledge, aware of the attacks of the evil one, and constantly living to give Jesus glory, the one who will receive glory forever and ever and ever in the day of eternity. Bless us, Lord, as people of the cross who long to exalt Jesus Christ. Hallelujah.